Sup, freaks? It's your Uncle Marty here to introduce this episode with Bob McElrath. But before we begin, I just want to give a heartfelt apology to all, all my Texan freaks who may have listened to RHR that was posted last night, March 25th, 2021. Officially 1952, Moscow time. I fudged up. I fudged up. I got my Texas geography wrong. Terribly wrong. Embarrassingly wrong. That's on me. In the moment, I had a brain fart. Got Dallas and Houston mixed up with each other. I know that's blasphemous. But I'm going to try hard to right my wrong and to earn the love for my Texan freaks back. Yeah, I'm sorry. I woke up feeling embarrassed, frankly. Truly embarrassed. I already can't pronounce words too good. Now now I'm just proving that my, my geography is is not up to snuff. I'm gonna try to get better. For you freaks. You deserve it. You deserve better. Now we'll try to give you better. This episode was brought to you by our good friends at the Cash App. Cash App. Your homie stack sats, send sats, receive sats, sell sats. If you so please, we're saying sats, 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 sats. Because sats are the standard. There's 100 million sats in one Bitcoin, and you can stack whole sats using the Cash App. You can also get cash sats back when you use your cash card boost. Anywhere Visa's accepted, and you have your uh, Bitcoin boost. Initiated, you get sats back when you go purchase things somewhere. It's pretty dope. <coughs> Cash app can even be your bank account. They have offering account numbers and rallying numbers, so you get your paychecks direct deposited into the app. The whole shebang. Go figure it out. Go download the Cash app. Use the code stacking sats. That's S T A C K I N G S A T S. When you download the app, you're going to get $10, and $10 is going to go to our good friends at Owls Lacrosse. That's Owls Lacrosse. Woo! Owls Lacrosse. This is also brought to you by your good friends at Hoddle Hoddle. Hoddle Hoddle is helping you if you're a Bitcoiner and need some liquidity and you don't want to sell your Bitcoin. They have their Lend product that is available to U.S. citizens. All right, it's an incredible product. It's allowing you to keep your Bitcoins. Okay, Lend at Hoddle Hoddle is a new non-custodial Bitcoin-backed lending platform that allows peer-to-peer lending. Individual users meet on the platform globally, anonymously, on their own terms. You put your Bitcoin up as collateral in a multi-sig escrow account. You hold one key. You're getting some liquidity by borrowing. You don't need to entrust someone with your funds, right? You have the collateral locked in escrow and never be rehypothecated. You hold one key. You can always track that collateral. You control a key to it. If you have some stable coins... And you want to get some yield on those. You want to get some return. Lend at Hoddle Hoddle also gives you the ability to put those up to be lent out so that you can get returns on that. They're saying as high as 25% in some cases, APR. So go create your offers and set your own terms on lend.hoddlehoddle.com. That's lend.hoddlehoddle.com. This group is also brought to you by good friends at Brains. Oh, excuse me. Brains doing incredible things, okay? They've been around for a while. Uh, you may know them because they, they operate Slush Pool. 
Slush pools uh, pretty popular. It's been around. First ever Bitcoin mining pool. Okay. They're also creating Brains OS. OS Plus. This is firmware for miners. You you download the Brain Brains OS firmware and it makes your miner stack more sats. I'm just gonna put it like that. Simply as that. We've had Jan and Pavel, the founders of Brains, on the podcast before. Uh, we've had Edward Evenson on the podcast as well. Go check out those episodes. Uh, Brains has been incredibly Bitcoin focused throughout their whole existence. Uh, they released the first free and open source firmware for Antminer S9s so that miners would have an alternative to Bitmain firmware. This was big back in the day uh, when Amplied was around. Uh, they discovered that there was a backdoor in Ampminer firmware that could give Bitmain the ability to remotely power off ASICs, and they provided miners running S9s with the ability to, to avoid that situation. In 2018, Brain Team verified that S9s could run about 13% more efficiently with overt ASIC boost, and they made that available to their customers as well. So go check out everything. Brains OS basically auto-tunes firmware to give miners more control over their ASICs and help them stack more sats, like I said. Currently support S9s, S17, T17 generation. And the dev team is working to support what's miners now. When what's miner? And they're working on it soon, TM. They're also working on the open source initiative, which we talk about in this episode, particularly, which is Stratum V2, along with Matt Corallo and some Square Crypto devs. They also publish a lot of content to educate Bitcoiners about some of the lesser known aspects of the mining industry. Their content is credible. Their profitability tools were incredible. If you're a miner, go check them out. If you're a Bitcoiner, wants to learn about mining, go check them out. Brains, B-R-A-I-I-N-S.com. B-R-A-I-I-N-S.com. Last but not least, this episode is brought to you by our good friends at Compass Mining. All right, Compass Mining is trying to make it easy for you freaks to go from zero to mining Bitcoin uh, as simply as possible. They, they take away all the hard stuff for you. They help you acquire a miner. They... Find a hosting facility with competitive energy cost. Uh, and they, they set up that relationship. They, they allow you to go on the site. You buy a miner. You pick a hosting facility. And they get that miner. And they plug it in at that hosting facility. And they start streaming you sats from the miner. Compassmining.io. C-O-M-P-A-S-S-M-I-N-I-N-G dot I-O. Make it easy. They're making it easy. They want to help distribute mining to more individuals and go from zero to mining at a competitive energy cost. You don't have to plug it in at your house. Annoy your wife with how loud it is. Annoy your parents with how loud it is. Annoy your in-laws with how loud it is. Heat up the house. Drive up the electricity bill. Compass Mining is here to help you avoid all those of those hairy situations. I hope you guys enjoy this episode. And to all my techs and freaks, I will make it up to you. Only time will prove this. But I promise I'm going to make a concerted effort to make up for my terrible mistake. I love all y'all. Enjoy. Dickie! You've had a dynamic where money's become freer than free. If you talk about a Fed just gone nuts, all, all the central banks going nuts. So it's all acting like safe haven. I believe that 
In a world where central bankers are tripping over themselves to devalue their currency, Bitcoin wins. In the world of fiat currencies, Bitcoin is the victor. I mean, that's part of the bull case for Bitcoin. If you're not paying attention, you probably should be. What is up, freaks? It's your boy Marty Bent here on a Thursday afternoon fighting through a cold. But very excited for the conversation I'm about to have. It's a very important one. We're getting back to basics here. I wrote about it in the newsletter. This morning, I uh, came across a YouTube video with like 120 views. And it was uh, a conversation about mining pool protocols and how to make sure they're sufficiently decentralized to be resilient against state attacks. Uh, the conversation revolved around Stratum V2, its potential shortcomings, and in uh, another type of pool that may want to focus on pool protocol, uh, Braid Pool, which is sort of an iteration on P2P pool, if I'm uh, remembering correctly. Sitting down with Bob McElrath. Bob, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Thank you um, for all you've done for Bitcoin throughout the years. Uh, <laughs> pivotal on my journey, because I believe if I understand correctly, you helped start the the New York BitDevs meetup, the white paper series specifically, correct? Uh, <clears throat> yeah, I didn't start it. I mean, Justin was the guy. He's the brains behind that. Uh, yeah, I actually rebooted it. There was an iteration of the white paper Wednesday before I got there. But yeah, I, I went to New York in 2015, I believe it was. And so ran the white paper Wednesday for a couple of years there, which is a lot of fun. Um, which is kind of on the back of my previous career in theoretical physics, where we would do what we call journal clubs in academia, where we just do a close reading on a paper that was important. Yeah, well, thank you for revamping it, because that was right around the time that I moved to New York, and that was the first uh, the first Bitcoin meetups I went to were those white paper Wednesdays. Oh, really? Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Um, in person. And Union Square Ventures was, was the venue yeah. back then, correct? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so thank you for that. I have a funny story. It's been told on the podcast quite a few times. Uh, I was in the back of the room, nervous, having uh, only ever seen the people in the room on Twitter. And I pointed to the, the, the clock across the way, across Union Square and said to Peter Todd, hey, how prescient is that? We're, we're across the, uh, the way from a deck clock and we're here talking about Bitcoin. And he was like, that's a time clock, sir. I was like, oh, wow. Um, <laughs> Uh, but the, uh, no, yeah, I mean, the, the reason I brought you on already described, it uh, came across this discussion you were having with Eric Boscule, uh, the Bitcoin Munich meetup YouTube channel about mining pool protocols and, and how we should be designing them to make sure they're sufficiently resilient against state attacks. And you were, you were mentioning something that you started working on in 2015, which is braid pool. And, um, I'd love to just dive into the whole topic, like why we should be focused on the mining, pro, mining pool protocol level, uh, the solutions that exist today, and, and how we can make it more resilient via something like Braid Pool. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, so for those that are kind of not aware how, of how mining works, you know, you basically, you try and mine a block and your miner doesn't hit the, the difficulty target for Bitcoin. It sends this incomplete work, it, you know, they're in there, there is a proof of work, but it's not enough work to um, qualify for a Bitcoin payout. You send this to a centralized entity called pool. The pool puts this in their database, they do accounting on it, and they count how many, many of these that you, uh, uh, you produce. Um, and then if anybody within the pool produces a block, they then take those funds and distribute them proportionally to all the people who contributed um, uh, what's sometimes called weak blocks, in other words, the shares. 
uh, that you contribute. So that's what pools are. That's the way pools work. Um, and kind of the risk factor of pools is that there are only a handful of them. Um, they are easy to censor. You know, if a government, you know, wanted to, to censor them, there are only a couple of entities to go to and say, hey, you have to, you know, censor this address or you have to not um, process transactions from this entity or this miner is in a jurisdiction we don't like. You're not allowed to pay him. Um, that would be very easy for government to do, right? And, you know, that's, that kind of goes against the, the whole narrative of Bitcoin. But the reasons pools exist are kind of an economic necessity. And uh, it all comes down to two concepts. Um, Eric likes to call it proximity premium. Uh, and the other is variance. So let me uh, interrupt me at any point if you want to clarify or discuss further, but I, I'll just ramble on here. Keep rambling. Um, okay. So the variance is the concept that, um, you know, every, every day there are 144 blocks produced, right? Um, the error on your profit in that 144 blocks is basically the square root. So the number of blocks that are produced in a day is um, 144 plus or minus 12. And that is simply statistics, right? That is Poisson error on the number of blocks in a day. If I'm a smaller miner, in other words, I'm not earning all the blocks. I'm earning, let's say, 10% of the blocks or 1% of the blocks, right? If I'm earning 1% of the blocks on average, uh, you know, I'll, I might produce a block one day and I won't produce a block the next day. And, it, you know, in practice, most miners are much smaller than 1%. And so you might produce a block a month. Um, and the variance on your profit on a yearly basis um, can be quite high, right? Uh, you, you can't really stand in one year for your profit to be 50% lower one year and then 50% higher in another year. It's very difficult to do planning. It's very difficult to, um, you know, procure your miners and know what your budget is and things like that. Uh, I, I did an analysis for, uh, I gave a talk at the Magic Crypto Conference in 2019 in New York, uh, and I did a little bit, little analysis asking the question, if I want my annual variance on my profit to be less than 1%, how large does my pool need to be? And on Bitcoin, the answer is about 20%. Each pool needs to be 20% in order for my annual variance on my profit to be 1%. Uh, your monthly variance is higher. It's like 3.5% or something like that. But your annual variance is down to 1%. And that you know, gives me confidence on uh, you know, my budget and my mining operation. Now, um, that if you look at the pools that exist today, you might notice all of them are around 20%. And I hypothesize this is kind of a natural equilibrium point for the size of pools. Uh, miners choose pools, but they don't want them to be too big. You know, if, the, if the pool gets above you know, 33%, we're starting to get into 51% um, attack territory. But definitely not above 51%, right? But they don't want them to be too small either. So the net effect is that you know, if each pool is 20%, you have five pools globally, right? Five entities to attack to essentially shut down Bitcoin. Um, so how do we solve this problem, right? Um, we, we have to trust these entities, um, <coughs> these pools. They are often in strange jurisdictions. Lots of them are in China, slush pools in the Czech Republic. Your mining operation might not be in the same legal jurisdiction. And they owe you money. There is counterparty risk here. There is contracts. Most pools don't even have, have any contracts. You just send them your, your shares and hope they pay you, right? Um, but you know, as the industry grows and becomes more professional, these questions of legal matters are going to become more important. Um, you know, if my pool doesn't pay me, what is my legal recourse? Uh, and in practice, um, people have basically YOLO'd it because switching pools is relatively easy. Um, you know, you could switch pools 
um, in, in a relatively short notice and only miss, you know, a couple hours or a couple days worth of blocks. But, uh, you know, long term, what we really want is we want to have a decentralized pool. Uh, we want something that integrates directly with Bitcoin itself. Um, you know, if the block rate on Bitcoin was a lot, lot faster, uh, we wouldn't have had this problem in the first place. But for various reasons, um, that's not possible. Um, so, so what do we do with this? Um, years ago, there was a, a mining pool called P2Pool. So P2Pool was itself a blockchain. Um, it had a 30 second block time. Um, and its purpose was to mine Bitcoin blocks. So with a 30 second block time, that's 20 times slower or 20 times faster than Bitcoin. So on average, one out of every 20 blocks on P2Pool was actually a Bitcoin block. And then P2Pool used its blockchain to account for those other 19 blocks on average in that time interval. And from that one uh, block that actually was mined on Bitcoin, pay those other 20 people. Um, and if you go back and look at the a blockchain explorer and some of these uh, uh, older blocks, you'll see some Coinbases that have, you know, between 20 and 100 addresses in them. These are P2 pool blocks. The Coinbase has like 20 addresses or 100 addresses because it's paying all the other miners. Um, so that's, that was a great idea. It didn't work for a number of different reasons, um, but it was fully decentralized. It is a blockchain um, and uh, it's frankly a great idea. Why didn't it work? Well, as you decrease the time interval between blocks, you increase the probability that two miners accidentally produce a block at the same time. And you increase what's called the, the orphan rate. This is what Eric Bosco calls the proximity premium. Um, if you are close to another miner uh, in space and in time, um, you can produce blocks very quickly after each other because I hear about his blocks faster because I'm close to him in space and in time. Um, but on a global scale, uh, there's a you know minimum time that it takes to propagate block to or pro propagate any message to everybody on Earth, um, and you know using uh, the analysis I did in 2015, this is about six seconds using the Bitcoin network to get a block to everybody. Um, today it's probably closer to around a half a second to a second. So there's a window of time between a half a second and a second where two miners could produce blocks at the same time. This sets an absolute lower limit on how fast you can produce these blocks. And the idea here is that you've got a, a blockchain that's producing blocks very fast because each one of those blocks is a share as you'd account for in a mining pool. But we're doing our accounting on a blockchain with blockchain rules. And that everybody's enforcing these blockchain rules. Everybody's enforcing that everybody gets paid. And by using a decentralized network like this, there's no one to attack if you want to take it down, right? It's also more fair in, the, in that you don't have any counterparty risk. You don't have a contract with somebody. You don't have to worry about what jurisdiction this pool is in. Um, it would be a lot better in a lot of different ways if we had something like this that worked. Um, so uh, I did some work starting in 2015 through about 2019, uh, looking at a different structure for a blockchain called a directed acyclic graph. Um, and if you're interested, I gave three talks about this total, I believe, um, under the, the title braiding the blockchain, if you just Google that. And really what I contributed to the conversation is how to organize a blockchain such that every block can have more than one parent. And the purpose of doing this is to allow the block time to be very fast, which corresponds to allowing a large number of miners to contribute shares and get paid. Um, so that's my contribution to it. Uh, you know, at this point, um, I really would like to pass the torch on this subject. I've, I've worked on it for some time. 
I made my contribution and for various other reasons in my life, I, I don't have the time to write the whole thing myself, but there's enough people in the world who are interested in this and need it, that I'm hoping other people pick it up. Um, so there's a fellow, uh, Jungli on Twitter, who is now um, hell-bent to write a spec for this and get a prototype implementation. And that's where we stand today. Okay. So I want to dive more into like the specifics of this because this is a very interesting concept. And I, I didn't realize P2Pool was its own blockchain. Yeah, yeah, it is. And so like instead of getting instead of producing hashes and contributing hash to this blockchain, instead of getting a reward and a token, you're getting shares in the payout of the Bitcoin block reward. So I guess the token would be That's right. a claim on future shares. That's right. So there, there isn't necessarily a um, native token on these blockchains with the separate transaction system. So P2Pool did not have a native token, right? So it, it wasn't a shitcoin, which is one of the things that made it great. Um, but instead, it, it simply did accounting for shares. Uh, and its only native token was Bitcoin. Uh, one of the things I have proposed for uh, a future potential braid pool was, would be to actually have a native token. And that native token would be proportional to the number of estimated hashes uh, contributed in a share. Um, and this enables a number of things. It enables different miners to mine at different rates without overwhelming the system by sending too many blocks. Um, it allows derivatives because this, this enables hash rate derivatives because one token is essentially the hash rate. The other token is Bitcoin. So I can do, you know, D Bitcoin, D hash rate and create futures and options out of that, which is exactly a financial instrument that um, miners really need. So would this be like a, is this like technically a side chain or is it completely separate? Like uh, I'm trying to no, conceptualize it's, it's this in my brain. Um, it is, it is a merged mind blockchain, right? So if you're familiar with like uh, Dogecoin and Litecoin, so Dogecoin and Litecoin are merged mind. So the same mining hardware can mine both at the same time. Uh, so this is similar in concept. The same mining hardware mines both the blockchain for P2Pool or for Pool and Bitcoin at the same time. If So the, the block header that it's mining is always actually a Bitcoin block. If it doesn't satisfy the difficulty target for Bitcoin, but does satisfy the difficulty target for the braid, it can become a node in the braid, right? But not a Bitcoin block. And then sometimes those blocks are actually Bitcoin blocks, um, and there are rules about what has to be in that Bitcoin block to pay everybody involved on the uh, on the break. Okay. And those rules are enforced by the big, uh, blockchain rules, not the Bitcoin blockchain rules. And practically the way it appeared in P2Pool was rule about what had to be in Coinbase. In other words, your Coinbase had to contain um, all of the address from all the other people who submitted shares in proportion in the, with the right calculation of the number of Satoshis they were owed, right? Mm -hmm. It's a simple way to think about it. So that's what, yeah, that's actually another question I had, like illuminating the, the old coin bases with many addresses, like how, like when these miners in the this decentralized pool are sending shares, they just attach an address to every share or that's every right. block. To, okay. That's right. All right. Which is what you do with a mining pool anyway, right? Yeah. Yeah. All right. And so I, I guess, again, to dive deeper into the conversation that you and Eric were having with the trade-offs of this, right? Like you already described some of it with the proximity, like, uh, like I guess the big knock or question that needs to be answered is latency. 
um, in profitability for smaller miners versus using well, so a decentralized cool. pool versus larger miners using a more centralized option. Yeah, so that's the problem I think I've solved. Uh, there are plenty of unsolved problems. <laughs> but using the directed acyclic graph, allowing miners to essentially choose their own difficulty um, so that rather than producing five blocks in a time period, they produce one block. Uh, what you can essentially do is um, set the braid up such that everybody targets the same variance rather than the same block rate, right? And if you, if you look at any pool, um, they will scale you down. So if you're producing shares too fast, they will increase your, they'll double your difficulty and double again, double again until you're producing shares at a rate that doesn't overwhelm your systems. Um, so you can do the same thing with the braid. Um, and what I've showed is uh, how you essentially add those together. So two different blocks with two different target difficulties can be added in a reasonable way using the directed asynchronous graph. So that should be solved. Um, and I'm happy to contribute to somebody who wants to carry this forward. There are plenty of other, other unsolved things um, like, you know, what is the native token? How does that work? Does it have a transaction system? Uh, do we do atomic swaps so that people can uh, essentially instantly sell their shares for Bitcoin? Uh, through market makers on exchanges. Um, there's, there's lots of interesting problems to solve. Mm -hmm. Fascinating. And again, going back to the, the way pools are set up now and the way Stratum V2, if adopted widely, would work. You, you said in, in the talk of the, the Bitcoin Munich meetup, the Stratum V2 improves in a lot of things, which is like the payout mechanism is, is where everything's hung up. Right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Stratum V2 fixes everything except for the fact that someone owes you money, right? Mm -hmm. And you don't know if they're doing their accounting properly. You don't know if you can sue them if they fail their responsibilities. Um, you know, you, you don't really have any recourse. Uh, and they are a target for um, potential attack. Okay. And so, like, what if you could open source the, the payout mechanism, right? And they can't not That's have the it. Goal. That's the goal. I mean, there has been open source um, pool software in the past, uh, but you know, you never know what's being run behind the scenes um, at a centralized pool, right? <laughs> By using yeah. a blockchain, those rules of who and how, how you paid are in the code itself. You're running it, everybody else is running it. Um, and if they violate those rules, you know, your node is going to reject their, their beads in the braid, if you will. Um, because they didn't follow the rules. It's the same as Bitcoin, right? It's the same way we enforce rules with Bitcoin. Yeah, yeah. Um, but then, you know, those rule enforcements are completely decentralized, right? There's nobody that's holding your money. Uh, the distribution of, of funds is actually coming from the blockchain itself. There's no entity who has keys and you have to trust them to do something with those keys in order for you to get paid. Yeah. There, so that said, there are designs. Um, uh, Chris Belcher has... Uh, done some work kind of um, jumping off of my braids work um, where he has uh, what he calls, um, uh, what are they called? These uh, kind of federated nodes who actually handle the payout, which is another potential solution. Um, anyway, it's, it's worth looking at his work as well uh, if you're interested in this topic, but I would, I would prefer to have all the payouts happen on chain so that you can use the blockchain rules to enforce them. Yeah, and I guess the biggest hold up there is like, if you, you have an individual miner within a decentralized pool that constructs a block like how can you guarantee that they pay out to the other miners contributing to that decentralized pool because he has to prove it with every block he submits okay so uh let's say i submit a block okay um so 
mining a block that didn't hit the Bitcoin difficulty target. Uh, I did hit a lower target as required by the tool. Now, uh, not only do I have to submit a Bitcoin block header that contains this lower proof of work target, I also have to submit proof that within that block are payouts as required by the pool. So in the case of P2 pool, uh, what that means is not only do I reveal the, the header, I also reveal the Coinbase in the transaction Merkle tree, and that has to contain the addresses and correct payouts as dictated by the, by the um, P2 pool blockchain. So if I don't submit all of those things, it's not considered a valid share. Okay. And my, my share is rejected and I won't get paid for that share. That makes a lot of sense. And so, like, if this is successful, if like a, a successful and working braid pool implementation comes to market, right, we can end up with like one decentralized mining pool, essentially, correct? Or would, yeah. would, there, be, would there be? Yeah, competing? that's the goal. I mean, there's really no like 51% attack risk with this by having one pool. Um, you know, everybody could be on this pool safely uh, without creating any risk. Unlike with centralized pools where you do have this, 50, if any one of them gains um, 51%, it would be bad. Yeah. <clears throat> Are you optimistic that this can come to market? I, I am optimistic. You know, I haven't been paying much attention to it in a while. Um, the Bitcoin Munich guys asked me and Eric to talk about it, so we did. Um, and, you know, I think this has sparked a bit of interest. Um, and so I'm happy to see that interest, um, including from, you know, potential people who might fund this. So uh, I'm beginning to think in the back of my mind that I might be able to put some grants together or something like that. Um, if that's something that interests you, either from a funding perspective or from a receiving funds perspective to build this, uh, reach out to me personally. I would love to pull that together because yeah. I don't think I can do this myself, but I would love to facilitate other people creating it. Yeah, so, I mean, it's important. And you're speaking to somebody who's been really championing Stratum V2. Disclaimer brains is sponsor of the podcast but well, as, as you should yeah no as you should right i mean stratum v2 is a step in the right direction it doesn't solve all the problems but you know you got to start somewhere and uh, everybody should be using strategy two we'll stop right. right there's no excuse for using strategy one anymore but there are remaining problems that we would also like to solve yeah and i think just for any newcomer who may be listening to this podcast and isn't i mean we've already talked about it a bit but like how like, important is it that we ensure that this layer is sufficiently decentralized in the future like right now everybody's playing nice and um maybe we haven't seen governments pressure pools to censor but it could happen in the future it's and like, and what about jurisdictional arbitrage that's something i wrote in the newsletters today like what if pools are sufficiently domiciled across the globe and one government says, hey, uh, we're going to force you to censor some transactions. And another government says, hey, we're, we're not going to force you to do that. So point your hash rate at a pool in our, our borders so we can collect those tax revenues from the mining pool. Well, it's happening, right? I mean, um, we already have uh, the OFAC, the Office of Foreign Asset Control, has you know, listed Bitcoin addresses that are you're not allowed to do business with, basically. Now... Um, by and large, I don't think miners are censoring those addresses, but you know, if any service provider received a deposit from an address like that, they, they have to take action. They're legally required to take action. Now, does that mean miners have to do that? Um, not necessarily. 
now that said, there are those, uh, there are a couple of companies um, who have announced they are going to make uh, pools that are more restrictive in various ways. Um, one of them, I believe, said that they're going to make KYC of the miners required. Um, and the, the discussion is often had about whether those addresses that OFAC put out are going to be put into blacklists by miners. Um, and the fact of the matter is, it doesn't matter. Uh, there's always going to be somebody out there that's willing to mine those addresses. And it doesn't matter. In fact, if you're interested in law enforcement, you're interested, and, and you know, for, for clarity's sake, these addresses are uh, truly despicable people. They're people involved in um, you know, various kinds of crimes. And you know, it would be nice if they could get caught. Well, the way you can get them caught is if they actually deposit those funds at a service provider in a jurisdiction where they have committed the crime. And then those funds can be seized, right? Um, if we don't allow the transactions to be processed at the, at the mining layer, they can't move the funds. They can't move them to service provider and they can't be seized. So from a law enforcement perspective, it actually makes sense for miners to continue processing those transactions because that's what allows those funds to move to places that law enforcement could seize them. Very good point. It's actually one I haven't heard before, but it makes a lot of sense. I guess the whole blacklist thing is like, we don't want anybody profiting from from the movement of dirty funds that's disgusting yeah i mean blacklisting you know if if blacklisting excuse me if blacklisting was 100 effective what you effectively done is destroy the coins you destroyed the money right um that's not necessarily the best the best option you know watching the movement of funds uh involved in crime is itself evidence right um and being able to see what they're doing with it, uh, you know, it's, it's a way to gather information. Now, we should all be using Zcash. We should all be using, uh, you know, things that have more privacy. Uh, but that's not the world we live in with Bitcoin today. Um, we'll get there, but slowly. Um, but, you know, it, it frankly doesn't make sense for miners to be censoring. I, I, the, these pools, as I understand, are focusing mainly on just KYCing the miners so that other pool participants are confident that um, somebody who's on the, the OFAC list is not mining in, you know, aside, alongside them. Uh, I don't think it matters that much, frankly. Go ahead, do it. Uh, you know, it makes businesses comfortable. It makes businesses comfortable. It grows the industry. That's good for all of us. Agreed. Agreed. Um, there's always there's always another rabbit hole to fall down in the Bitcoin in the Bitcoin space. The <laughs> mining pool layer is one that many individuals don't think about um, too often. Yeah. It's one. Um, we're starting to think about more great American mining again, like as we expand here in the U S and you see publicly traded mining companies posturing, like you, like you mentioned with KYC individual miners, that's something we want to stay as far away from as possible. Yeah, um, my, me too. But the fact of the matter is, you know, when you get when one end of the mining economics is a public listed company and the other end is an auditing firm. And the third end is a, uh, you know, custody provider, like I previously worked for fidelity they're all gonna ask this question. Like we have to make sure that we are not facilitating crime, right? That's their legal obligation and they have to do it, right? Uh, you know, the, the fiat governments of the world have co-opted financial in institutions into uh, financial law enforcement. Now, I don't think it should be that way, but that's the way it is. And that's uh, what they have to do. So again, um, do the things that make them comfortable. But at the same time, building something like uh, Braidpool, if we build something like Braidpool, it has to be demonstrably better in essentially every way, right? 
So on the financial side of things, you remove counterparty risk. That's a big benefit to these, uh, these big players who are getting into mining now. Um, it removes uh, the possibility of government attack because there's no one to shut down, right? Uh, if you introduce native coin, um, you have the possibility of creating hash rate derivatives, which is demonstrably better for everyone. Um, these hash rate derivatives are a new market, new liquidity, new volume, right? Um, we need to glue all those things together, right? We can't end up in the situation that P2 pool had where, I mean, P2 pool failed um, because it wasn't better, uh, it was worse. And making something that's worse, but more decentralized is not gonna work. It has to be better. And one of its side benefits has to be that it's more decentralized. Agreed. Well, hopefully people start thinking about this more because it does feel like the pressure is gonna be heating up pretty significantly as Bitcoin yeah. crosses it the is. $1 trillion market cap like level. It seems I like- there are. I think there are six companies that have now filed for uh, ETFs in the US this year. Uh, the most recent announced yesterday was Fidelity, my former employer, uh, filed for an ETF you know, on the back of Fidelity Digital Assets, which I helped put together. Um, very proud of them for that. Congrats, guys, if any of you are listening. Um, but you know, I also worked for one of the previous ETF uh, sponsors, which is SolidX, who later partnered with Van Edge. So I was, I was there when the ETF got turned down twice. And um, this is going to be a point of contention for all six of these ETFs, right? Uh, you know, the SEC in, in approving an ETF is going to ask very hard questions about ensuring that money laundering isn't going on or that the ETF provider is doing everything um, So as you said, pressure's on from many different angles. Uh, you know, if we get an ETF, that's a pretty substantial source of pressure. And privately, you know, there are people getting involved in investing in mining who have more uh, restrictions on their ability to invest. You know, we're moving away from hedge funds and private money investing in Bitcoin to public uh, institutions, public funds uh, investing in Bitcoin. And they have a much higher auditing and reporting and due diligence requirements than, uh, than private funds. So yeah, the pressure's on. What if we get, if we use the First Amendment and the First Amendment come in here and, and protect Bitcoin and then particularly like miners and ETFs, yeah. like it's just a messaging protocol and speech. No. 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 <laughs> you don't think so? Why not? Um, oh, I'm not a lawyer. Don't ask me. <laughs> it's a complex that's question. <laughs> that's something I push for. It's like, right? It's just a messaging protocol at the end of the day. Like, how can you, how come you don't, don't how come you don't go after the telecoms when two terrorists uh, uh, basically, collude to to attack something over their networks I'm, I'm not the right person to ask this question of not my expertise but i will yeah. say that um the courts have ruled over and over again uh and, and refused to to dip into campaign finance reform and the argument is usually that money is a form of speech and your ability to contribute to a political candidate is, is a form of free speech um so you know maybe there's a path there i don't know uh again not my <laughs> my specialty but i think uh, it, it doesn't matter, you know, if this thing is facilitating crime, which is what they feel, um, without knowledge, by the way, um, you know, the, the rates of crime on Bitcoin are much smaller than the rates of crime within the fiat industry. But, um, you know, if it does facilitate crime, then they're going to do everything they can. You know, no, no legal hyperbole is going to stand up to an actual 
threat, right? Yeah, I feel you there. It's the fire in a crowded theater argument, right? Um, yeah, you have free speech, but you know, at the point that your free speech is harming people, uh, that you know, your right ends. Yeah, uh, the battles are just beginning, freaks. It's uh, <laughs> like, yeah, that's the other thing. Like, who, like, who's willing to stand up? Like, or should we even depend on people being willing to stand up, or should we make it so robust that you don't even have to worry? Which well, seems. What I want to do with Braidpool is not force people to have to stand up because no one wants to put their life on the line, right? No one wants to go out on a limb and say, I think decentralization is so important that I'm going to put, I'm going to put my time, my capital, my, my life, my, um, my risk of prosecution up for this goal. I want to get it as a side benefit by providing something else, which is demonstrably economically beneficial, right? Uh, you know, if you're, if your primary goal is, you know, decentralization and, and freedom, um, it's a hard sell. You know, most people are short-term thinkers. Uh, they're looking at their bottom line. They're looking at their profits. It's a lot easier to sell improved profits than it is to sell uh, high and mighty goals of, you know, resisting the government. Yeah, right. <clears throat> we are short-term thinkers. But I guess that segues into an interesting question, which I always wonder, like, what got you into Bitcoin originally? Uh, being a physicist was... Oh. It- um, well, so, uh, yeah, prior to physics, um, I have a whole other career in theoretical physics, uh, sorry, part of Bitcoin, I have a whole other career in theoretical physics. Um, so yeah, I got my PhD, uh, at the University of Wisconsin, and I held postdocs at, um, uh, UC Davis, uh, CERN in Switzerland, and then University of Heidelberg in Germany. And, um, so this was, I graduated from grad school in 2003. I was at CERN in 2009 when the, the Bitcoin white paper came out. And, you know, I've always been a software geek, uh, you know, long before I went into Bitcoin, I was uh, writing a lot of software. I had a science project in 10th grade, which is basically 10,000 lines of C++ code in like 1993. Um, so, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm self-taught. Um, I used to write a lot of software. And then when I, once I got into physics, basically, you know, every single one of my projects uh, revolved around software and involved a lot of software one way or another. But the output was always some graphs, uh, you know, in a paper rather than a software product. But, you know, going into software after physics was always kind of a natural thing. And um, I was also kind of always a crypto geek. You know, I had a PGP key from very, very early days. and was always very frustrated that there was nobody I could send email to. You know, I think uh, I had a couple of friends that I, you know, exchanged PGP keys with back in the day. And so I always kept an eye on, on this kind of technology. Um, and so when Bitcoin came out, it caught my attention like right away. I have friends from when I was at CERN who swear that I was talking about it in 2009. Uh, I think I may not have discovered it until uh, a little bit later than that. I think I, I think the, the first Slashdot post is when I discovered it, but it may have been earlier. I don't know. Uh, in early days, it didn't pay it that much attention. But another thing that was going on was that, um, you know, I was living in Switzerland and then Germany, and I had accounts in three different countries. I had, you know, three different currencies in my, uh, in my bank balances. Um, and I basically started fooling around the foreign exchange market because uh, I'm like, well, do I keep my money in Swiss francs or in euros or in dollars? I don't know. So I started fooling around and um, taught myself a lot about finance uh, in, in those years. And, you know, when I uh, when the writing on the wall became clear that I wasn't going to get a professor job in physics uh, and I started looking for a job, you know, doing something in software was obvious and doing something with Bitcoin was obvious. Um, I did do a bit of mining way back then. So I mined with my GPU back in like 2013, I think. 
I think I mined 0.1 Bitcoin. And at the time, the, um, the price of Bitcoin was uh, $30. So I, you know, for a week, turned my computer into a noisy space heater uh, and earned $3. And I said, screw that. <laughs> <laughs> screw that. I'm not doing that. Um, <laughs> I should have kept doing it. Not. Um, but instead went to work for uh, uh, some companies in space. I got a, a, a software job working on Bitcoin um, in 2014. And so that has led to several other jobs in the space. Um, I don't regret it for a second. It's been a wild, interesting ride and, and a very important one, I think. Yeah. I mean, I'm thankful that you found Bitcoin and <laughs> got into it because I think you're one of the better. <laughs> I think you're a great thinker in the space. I think this conversation around Braidpool proves it. I think we need adversarial thinkers who are thinking about the long term. I know the price. Yeah, we do. That's one of my, I don't know, long, long-term long frustrations is that um, I have this kind of thesis that uh, we're going to end up with a discipline, which I sometimes call um, cryptographic engineering. And, you know, Bitcoin really is a form of cryptographic engineering. You know, Satoshi glued together a data structure, which is a blockchain, which is really a linked list with some signatures, uh, you know, which is cryptography, with some hashing for the mining, he took all these cryptographic building blocks and glued them together. And this really, really requires, uh, as you said, an adversarial thinker. You've got to think about all the ways this goes wrong. And um, most software engineers are not adversarial thinkers. Most people write software to get it to the point that it works, and they don't evaluate the edge cases where it doesn't work. And you know, in, in this industry, you have to evaluate how it won't work first, because that'll be the you know, that'll be the barn door through which the truck comes and destroys the whole thing. Um, and, uh, you know, finding that adversarial thinking is, is rare. You know, I, I think all of the core devs have it, but you don't find it among the general software engineering population. I would like to see that developed kind of as a discipline that's taught in college. I, I don't know if it's really possible to teach adversarial thinking. Um, you know, I kind of found it on my own, you know, in the physics world, uh, when you propose an experiment, you have to then go figure out, like, what all the different ways are that uh, it might not be measuring the thing that you think it's measuring. And it's very adversarial. And then you go give a talk at the conference and people say, oh, that won't work. Blah, blah, blah. You know, it's, it's a very adversarial environment. So I kind of academically grew up in such an adversarial environment. So switching to Bitcoin was, was kind of natural to me, but that adversarial thinking is, is really not most people, unfortunately. I would like to see that developed into a proper discipline. <clears throat> Well, could it be distilled even further to simply critical thinking, right? <laughs> no, it's, it's more than that. Um, it's expecting the unexpected. It's, uh, you know, trying to figure out how, you know, it's, it's Murphy's Law, right? That, that which can go wrong will go wrong. You don't, you know, prioritize figuring out what might go wrong. It, you know, you're, you're, you're doomed. Everybody has a plan until you get punched in the face. I think Mike Mike yeah. Tyson really distilled that. Um, yeah, very exactly. very succinctly. Yeah. So um, creating something that works in this space is not enough. You have to create something that doesn't not work, which is a completely other world. Yeah. Well, if you're listening out there and you're a developer, adversarial thinking it's important. And if you're a Bitcoiner in general who's in it and very excited about the gains, these gains can be diminished if bitcoin can be diminished and bitcoin can be diminished if we don't have enough adversarial thinkers so yeah 
how uh i mean you mentioned that you, you'd be interested if anybody's out out there listening who'd be uh, interested in uh, contributing to to taking the torch and running with braid pool where can they find you how should they reach out is there anything i, I think there's like a free node irc channel correct uh yeah there is an irc channel on free node um you're welcome to join it. it's a good place for discussion um you can reach out to me personally on twitter uh i've been thinking you know since this conversation got started by the munich bitcoin guys I've been thinking more and more that I should probably uh, orchestrate a way to get this developed and in particular, a way to get it paid for because I've spoken to a number of people, including some very large miners. Um, we're very interested in this. Uh, and I, I have a few ideas for how to, to essentially fund its development. And that's, that's been one of my challenges is like, okay, so I could dump a year or two of effort into this without getting paid. And I just couldn't afford to do it, right? Um, and nobody can afford to work for free. And that's kind of the tragedy of, of open source and blockchain software is that, uh, you know, Satoshi put something out there as a public good. The fact that his coins made billions was, you know, is, is kind of an accident. He didn't know. He put, you know, years of effort into this before launching it. He couldn't, he couldn't be sure that it was going to actually make money. Um, so, yeah, uh, you know, most of the core developers are often struggling for funds. Um, and so those of you who have the capital, uh, please look into you know finding ways to contribute to the, to them because they are um, you know working for the greater good as it were, uh, and this is a similar case. Uh, you know this is really a blockchain on par with Bitcoin. Similar amount of effort to build, um, and similar amount of uh, you know people people need to eat. People need to be funded. So um, I'm saying this here for the first time. I would like to orchestrate funding these people. Um, I will try and organize a series of grants. Um, and I would like to collate people. I won't take any money for this. I won't get paid. Uh, I don't want to get paid. Um, but I will help orchestrate uh, getting money to the people who are working on it and evaluating those people who are working on it and deciding mm -hmm. who really are the best contributors um, to bring this forward. Awesome. And how big of a technical lift is it? I think, uh... It's big. Yeah. You know, some of, the, some of the building blocks are already there. So in the Munich podcast uh, or meetup, we were talking between myself, Eric, and uh, uh, Jungly. Uh, about using libbitcoin. So Eric Boskel has, has written the Bitcoin, which is a Bitcoin clone. Um, and uh, it has the property that it can run multiple blockchains at the same time. You know, the idea of like recompiling the code to run Litecoin when it's only like a one line change is kind of silly. And so he put it all as config flags and he could run more than one at the same time, which is something that's required for braid pool. You have to track not only Bitcoin, but also the, the braid. Um, and P2Pool does the same thing. It, it was a piece of Python software, but it had to connect to a Bitcoin node so it could track it. Um, so I think the two of them are very interested in this and would like to use uh, uh, LibBitcoin. I'm not opposed to that. Um, you might connect it to a Bitcoin node instead, tracking that one, but you do have to track two. And I think Eric has done some very, very smart things as far as uh, organizing LibBitcoin. When you re-implement a piece of software um, and refactor it, you know, the Bitcoin's written from scratch. You don't have to make all the same mistakes, and the fact of the matter is that um, Bitcoin core codebase is kludgy and ugly and old, and it's grown organically. Um, and you know, historically, what happens is people rewrite these things. You know, we aren't still using Netscape; it got rewritten into Chrome, Opera, and, and Microsoft Edge. Right? Each time that that happened, um, it got a little better, and mistakes of the past were able to be left behind. Uh, it's a big effort to rewrite something like that, but uh, in this case, it's already been done. 
the change would have to be made to the Bitcoin to track a directly cyclic graph is not that large. We're probably talking between 100 and 1,000 lines of code. Um, and everything else is basically kind of standard Bitcoin transactions, signatures, all that kind of stuff. It's already there. So um, I hope it's not that big of a lift, but I would estimate at least a year. I mean, in Bitcoin terms, that doesn't seem like that long of a time. Right? Yeah, maybe. You say that now, that now that Bitcoin is <laughs> what, 12 years old? <laughs> well, like, would this, need, would this need any changes at the protocol level? I know you're mentioning LibBitcoin. No. I know with Core, you need for Stratum V2, if they want to do the job negotiation part, they have to get something changed there. It's not consensus code, but it would need to merge um, at the Core level. Would this be well, any the different? would be for it to not um, require any consensus changes, right? Uh, I don't think there's any anything that actually requires consensus changes, which is actually kind of interesting from a prototyping perspective because um, I've, I've spoken to developers from like Monero and Litecoin are interested in the idea too. Um, you know, we could make braid pool for Litecoin and that would be kind of a great test bed for it for deploying it on Bitcoin. You know, the difference between Litecoin and Bitcoin is, is minimal. It's just the hash function really and the name, a couple numbers change. Um, so not requiring those changes in the parent blockchain is, is important. And I don't think it's required. Yeah. All right. Well, freaks, let's get on it. Let's make sure we're thinking adversarially and making sure Bitcoin is robust as possible. Right. Because yeah. right now, what, 93% of hash rate is dominated by pools in China? Is it that high? Oh, boy. I, I think, so. think so. Yeah. I think it's that high. But that uh, what you were saying earlier, like it would take like that's one thing. Great American mining, like we we have prepared, like we need to switch pools. Our head engineer, Austin, just thinks we can do it within ten minutes. He's pretty certain, like we need to switch. Like push. Yeah, it's worth you know, in, in lieu of Bitcoin or or sorry, braid pool, and you know, before something like that exists, you know, miners need to be able to switch um, quickly, and that's you know, in, in many ways, it's kind of just a script you have to write on the back end that'll do it. Uh, but there's authentication and, you know, pool authenticating issues and things like this. My experience has been to the miners that I've talked to that they are actually pretty sticky with their pool. They don't like switching pools. Um, now, I, I think this has changed somewhat. You know, back in the day, we used to use uh, what was called PPLNS, uh, which was pay for last end shares. Um, and this was uh, essentially what it did is it averaged over the last end blocks. Uh, and then paid people for uh, the average of that, their contribution during that time period. Today, most schools use PPS, paper share. So you, you submit a, um, uh, a share of work and you essentially immediately get paid. Um, now, this introduces counterparty risk because you don't know if the pool has the funds and that's a very important question, um, but it's more immediate. And in particular, it makes pool switching a lot easier, right? Because if I stop contributing hash rate, switch to another one, it doesn't affect my bottom line. Whereas in the past with PPLNS, the, one of the reasons we use PPLNS was to prevent people from pool hopping. Because uh, on some of the smaller coins that got 51% attacked, um, it was done via pool hopping. Uh, there were you know, things like nice hash, right? So people would take a look at all the coins out there and say, which one's the most profitable mine right now? And they would switch very quickly to another pool or to another coin to mine it. and um, in so doing, you could, you know, increase the hash rate on one coin by a factor of 10 in seconds. 
you know, all of a sudden you have a 51% attack on that coin accidentally just because people are following a profit. Um, but anyway, this largely, today this largely doesn't exist. People are using PPS and that means switching pools is easy. So for the miners out there, be prepared to do it. Yeah, be prepared. And hopefully if Braid Pool comes to market, we, we won't have to worry about any of this. Yeah. <laughs> is what we should be striving for. So thank you for again starting this work in 2015 and then shout out to the the bitcoin munich meetup for for forcing a conversation about it recently and hopefully this podcast uh pushes the conversation a bit forward and we can make sure bitcoin's sufficiently resilient to these government attacks because they will be coming they will uh, be coming yeah. governments are not going to take uh you know uh removal of their fiat hegemony and the the powers that gives them flying down right they're going to fight tooth and nail yeah uh, so yeah anybody who wants to contribute to this uh you know please reach out to me bob mcgillrath on twitter again there is a braid pool uh, irc channel irc.freenode.net i've spoken with jungly we'll be setting up a mailing list and possibly other communication channels soon um and if you are interested in having something that's created and are willing to put some um some money where your mouth is uh to fund it please let me know also um and i will try to connect you with uh, some great developers who want to build it and get it done. Awesome. I guess one last question before we leave, just to be adversarial about this particular topic, like what's the knock on this? What's the knock? What do you mean? Like why, why could this be a bad thing? Um, if at all. Why could this be a bad thing? Uh, um, Oof, I can give several things, but they're all fairly deep, long conversations. Um, <laughs> so like in terms of Eric's uh, latency um, or proximity premium, it can't be completely solved because you still have to post into Bitcoin, which does have a proximity premium. Um, you can certainly make it a lot better, but you can't completely solve it. Um, another one that I like to think about sometimes, maybe a benefit, maybe a, a detraction is that um, there's this concept out there of a feather fork. And the idea is that uh, the underlying blockchain like Braidpool could become the main blockchain over time with the legacy blockchain essentially becoming, uh, you know, if, if nobody's using it, everybody's running Braidpool, then Braidpool becomes Bitcoin. Um, now this has been proposed under the, under the name feather fork as a way to radically alter the rules of Bitcoin, right? It's a way to do a hard fork that without doing a hard fork, um, you know, it's, it's kind of an opt-in mechanism for a hard fork. You know, braid pool will work if, you know, only 10% of miners are using it. It doesn't really care. But if it ever got to like 100% of miners using it, then, well, what is the purpose of the, the original blockchain? If 100% of everybody's using the new one, you've effectively executed a hard fork. Now, that could be good or bad, depending on your perspective. Um, That's a whole nother can of worms. Oh, my gosh. Exactly, I told you. <laughs> right, <laughs> worms. Well, um, I guess the number one question that opens up there is like, do the full node validators on the the original Bitcoin network like would they ever accept like would they ever go transact on that other blockchain? Well, no, but they and they wouldn't know about it, right. Again, they don't have to know about Braidpool existing. It looks like just another pool producing blocks down, right? Yeah. But you know, if all the people I need to transact with are running Braidpool instead and Braidpool can carry Bitcoin value 
in special transactions, um, in addition to the, its, its native share coin value, uh, I could trans I could transact Bitcoin that way, right? It's it's similar to a peg sidechain like the Liquid Networks or the, the Risk Network, something like that. At that <laughs> point, um, except that because it's an underlying layer that produces Bitcoin blocks as a side effect, um, it, it can actually take over the parent blockchain. Yeah, that's fascinating. That I mean, I've heard the the argument like Liquid Lightning could like reduce the protocol layer of Bitcoin to something like Rye Stones. Where, where nothing moves and everything happens on those layers. Sounds yeah. similar, but a bit different. And is that a big problem? Um, I guess that's a discussion I would, would I, have to. I don't know if it's a big problem. I'm a big fan of Lightning. Um, a fan of Liquid too, to a lesser extent. Uh, but you know, I think the Satoshi had it right. The Bitcoin's a settlement layer and the real value is gonna be trans transacted on Lightning. Lightning. Yeah, I agree, I'm a big fan of Lightning Network. I've been using it a lot and actually, people are going to be streaming me sats as they listen to this podcast. Um, awesome. Isn't it, it's a crazy world we're living in. Awesome. Well, Bob, I know you're a busy man. I think I appreciate you taking some time to sit down with me and answer my stupid questions today, but I think it's an important Not conversation. Not stupid at all. Yeah. Appreciate the opportunity and I hope, uh, hope we can get this off the ground. I've yeah, been no. trying and failing to get it off the ground for a long time. So I hope this time around, uh, people will reach out to me and we can really get this built. Yeah, I know. Um, I mean, this Bitcoin Munich YouTube conversation got, got thrown in our Great American Mining chat, so I know our engineers are thinking about it, and I think awesome. we'd, we'd be willing to help out in these efforts as well, so we should have a awesome. side chat about that. Let's have a side chat. Awesome. We'll, um, we'll coordinate that side chat off air, but I hope you enjoy <laughs> the rest of your day, uh, and thank, thank you again. You have a good one. Peace and love, freaks.